So the last few times we've gotten together like this, we have been talking about gratitude, in particular about how we can nurture and foster more of it in our lives. Uh, I've been sharing with you that, that one of God's many desires for us is that certain virtues, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, solely through the work of God giving that message and that gift to us, um, we get invited on this journey where we are invited to nurture certain Christian virtues in our own lives. Uh, things like love and peace and patience, uh, but also gratitude. Things that God wants to see in us and then flowing through us. And we define gratitude like this. Gratitude is a deep appreciation for the goodness and the gifts of life. And we said God wants to see gratitude in us for a number of reasons. Um, God wants to see gratitude in us because God deserves our gratitude. He deserves to be thanked. If you do something nice for your kids, you deserve to be thanked. God does something nice for us, and he does a lot of nice things for us. He deserves to be thanked. But also, we should try to nurture gratitude because, quite honestly, it leads to a better existence. Grateful people are happier people. Uh, they are more fulfilled people. They are thriving people. Uh, if you want to thrive in life as God has designed it, uh, gratitude needs to be a key component of your life. And so we talked about a handful of ways in which we can try and nurture and foster gratitude. In fact, I told you that there was going to be three things that I was going to put in front of you. And so far, we've talked about two of them. Last Sunday, we got together, and I said, this is really simple, but it's really effective. You should be a person who, as your grandma told you to, counts your... Yeah, like literally, you should go through life and just be like, that's a blessing, that's a blessing, that's a blessing. It is really hard to be ungrateful if you're constantly pointing out all of the tiny little good things in your life. And then if you were here with us during the middle of the week at our Thanksgiving Eve service, we talked about the habit of praising your provider, of how embracing this, this almost habitual praise of God for all the things that you see. So you're not only counting things, but you're, you're going through life, even if you have to just kind of constantly mumble it under your breath, saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. And it sounds so simple, but it is so powerful. It is nearly impossible to be a person who lacks gratitude when you're constantly saying, that's a blessing, that's a blessing, that's a blessing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I've got one more for you, but, but I'm going to warn you, this is the one of the three that you're, like, not going to like. You're going to be like, oh, great, I showed up on that Sunday. <laughs> I brought a friend on this Sunday of all Sundays. Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> this is the one that might make you squirm just a little bit, but it's something we have to talk about because if you embrace this in your life, it is a surefire way to ignite gratitude and add joy to your journey and to the lives of so many other people. So you should count your blessings, you should praise the provider, and you should share your stuff. You should absolutely share your stuff, and all of a sudden the three-year-old inside of all of us is like, no! <laughs> and when I say stuff, I, I mean not only should you like open your home to your neighbors, not only should you invite people to your table, not only should you use your gifts and talents to bless the community around you and the church in front of you, but I, I'm literally talking about your stuff, like in particular, your money. Like that's what I'm talking about. You should share that with the world around you. Like extravagantly, you should seek to share it. And, and I feel okay saying that to you quite boldly because the scriptures say that to us quite boldly. Like, don't blame me. I'm just the mailman. I'm just here to deliver the message. Like, whenever you look through the scriptures and you, you hear this call to generosity, it is almost always, like, basically without fail, it is a call to share 
earthly blessing, like material wealth. It is a call to share it with the people around you, to not keep all of it for yourself, but to give it to others. So like in the Old Testament, it was about grain. In the New Testament, it's about coin. In the Old Testament, it was like, don't harvest your field all the way to the edges. Leave some of the edge for other people. In the New Testament, we see Paul talking to Timothy, saying, Timothy, tell the people who are blessed in your world that they need to share their stuff. The people who are materially blessed need to share their stuff. We, we just heard it a minute ago. Let me reread this. This is Paul to Timothy, like coaching him up and telling him how to be a pastor. And so Paul's like, hey, you got to talk to the rich people too. And here's what you tell the rich people, all right? As for the rich in this present age, charge them. Now, the Greek word there is basically command them. Like use whatever pastoral authority you have to command them not to be haughty, like not to be arrogant about what they have, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't bank on it lasting forever or giving you true joy, but to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Charge them that they are to do good. The implication here is they are to do good with their wealth. To be rich in good works because of how they use their wealth. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Uh, Paul is saying, tell them that when they give away things in this life according to God's values, they're making an investment in eternity. They're hitching their heart to the things that matter always and forever so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is not just about them being generous. This is about them experiencing the fullness of the life that God has called us to. Now, hearing these words, you may immediately be tempted to disqualify yourself because you see that first line. It says, as for the rich, and you're like, sweet, I'm out. <laughs> this does not apply to me. Never before have you been so delighted to not be rich. But I want to caution you on that. I'm going to say, like, not so fast, Warren Buffett. You, you may not be as wealthy as you want to be, but you are wealthier than you realize. Like, in the grand scope of history and just like in a global perspective, we are wealthy. And I touched on this last week. But there's actual, like, data behind this. So the median household income in Houston is, Metro Houston, is $62,000. That's the median household income. Um, if, if that happens to be your median household income, that puts you in the top 0.17% of richest people in the world. Look at you. And that, that means you are the 10,064,223rd richest person on the planet. Congratulations. I think you get a medal for that. But, but it, I can go even further. Uh, the, the poverty level in the U.S. in 2018 is $20,000 per year for a family of three. That is not a lot of money. And yet even that, on a global perspective, puts you in the top 3.29% of the richest people in the world. It makes you the 197 millionth richest person on the earth by income. Now, I say this, and I don't want to minimize any financial hardships that people may be having. Just because you're in the top 3% worldwide does not mean that you're able to make ends meet locally. I get that. And that is a very real pain and problem, and we have resources here at St. Mark that can help you with that if you're in dire straits. But, but I do think it's good for us to have a sense of perspective. That in the grand scope of history, and certainly as we look globally, we collectively, in our present age, to use Paul's terminology, we are people who are well-positioned as a whole. We are people of privilege. We are people of means. We are a people collectively, collectively of, of wealth. We are. 
The poorest and the richest among us in our particular day and age, in our particular context, we are, we are blessed. And, and what you see in the scriptures is that if you realize that you have material blessing in your hand, God is going to then immediately start to call you on this journey of growth. The second you realize, oh, my cup is overflowing, he's going to try and get you to pour that cup in certain directions. That's what God is all about. You see, what I want to remind you of and remind myself of is that Jesus and generosity go hand in hand. Jesus and generosity are locked together. If you're talking about Jesus, you're going to be talking about generosity really in two directions. The first direction of generosity is all the generosity that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And if you're here as, as a non-believer or kind of a skeptic, this is the primary thing that you need to take away from this morning, is that Jesus is indescribably, unendingly generous to this world and to you. That, that you may be the most successful oil and gas engineer that this city has ever seen, and yet, like from God's perspective, spiritually speaking, you are bankrupt. Like, spiritually speaking, you, you, have, you have nothing to offer God that can, like, earn his favor or his goodness. And, and if you take a moment and you're honest with yourself, you kind of know that. Like, when you go to bed at night and you close your eyes, you take an assessment of your life, you know that if it were a game of let's prove myself to God, that you would, like, lose that game. I would, too. Like, I'm not saying I'm better than you. I would, too. You, you, ha- you are the perpetrator of, of countless selfish acts. And that has done a, done a work on you. And you're also the victim of a violent, brutal, selfish, and sinful world. And the end result is that, that you are like the shell of the man or the woman that you really should be. You just are. Because of things that you've done, that you've failed to do, and things that have been done to you. you. You are not the man or the woman that you should be. And you have nothing in and of yourself that you can take to God and say, See, I meet your standard. I meet your mark. I can lay claim to your blessing and your goodness and your glory. You you just can't. No one can. And then Jesus enters the story. And what Christians believe is that Jesus Christ has come into this world to respond to your plight and to mine, to our, our spiritual bankruptcy, and he, he builds this resume of beautiful living. And then he, he takes on this brutal punishment that he didn't deserve. And then he, he orchestrates this, this unparalleled victory over the grave. Resume, punishment, victory. And then what he says to the world is, this is what I have in my hands. An unparalleled resume, a brutal punishing death that I didn't deserve, and a victory over the grave. Have it. Take it out of my hands and have it as yours. And so, like, through faith in him, through simply realizing that you have nothing but you need everything from him, he then says, okay, my resume is yours. Now when God the Father looks at you, he sees my resume. And he says, through faith in me, my, my brutal punishing death is yours. Now God is able to look at you and say, every sin is forgiven. And now my victory over the grave is yours. So the promise is now that even though death may bite you, claw at you, may get you for a moment, it will not own you. I lived in the end, and so you too will live in the end. That's the generosity that Jesus shows to the world and to you. Everything that he has, he empties his hands, and he gives it to you. But then like the more that sits with you, 
the more it becomes logical to say, my whole life needs to be a life of generosity. Like, the more you realize how generous Jesus is to you and, like, everything you have is icing on a grace cake, you increasingly become aware that the only logical, rational way to live is to just be as generous and loving as humanly possible. The more you come to terms with who Jesus is in here, the more it starts to affect how you handle the stuff you hold in your hands right here. You start to wrestle with things like this. If if the promises of Jesus are true, then why am I so worried about whether or not I'm going to be okay? Like, I I could extend myself generously to this person or to that thing, and I, I know that God loves me. He's proven that to me in Jesus Christ, and I know he's got my back in the end. Or if the promises of Jesus are true, then it means all the stuff of this world that has importance now is like fading away. Like it will not last. It is temporary treasure. It is monopoly money. And yet I'm part of the family and the kingdom that is emerging and unending. So like why am I, why am I gripping so tightly to this stuff rather than just using it strategically in this temporary world? You see, God wants to take you on this journey where the generosity to you in Jesus Christ leads to and unlocks some generosity through you. I think that journey kind of looks like this. I want to give you a very quick overview of what what God is trying to do in you in terms of growing your generosity that leads to deeper gratitude. And so if you write down anything this morning, I want you to write down these three things. Let me give you the first one. We are born into this world as consumers. We are born into this world as greedy-handed consumers. And what I mean by consumer is that you see every resource around you, be it food, be it money, be it mom, dad, brother, sister, you see it as something that is for you to completely consume for your joy and your pleasure and your benefit. That's why children, among the first words that they learn are mom, dad, and mine. You all know you have children, right? Mom, dad, and mine. And who do you think they learn it from? They learn it from you. Because we are born into this world as consumers. So we have, in my house, we have, we have a pantry full of leftover Halloween candy. We have all the Halloween candy that my kids went out and scoured the neighborhood for. But then we have all the Halloween candy that we didn't manage to give away. So like, we have a storehouse full of just horrible sugar. And, and like every day at one point, like my four-year-old will, will come to us and ask very nicely for just a little portion of that sugar stash. And we will very often give him a very tiny portion of that sugar stash. He's asked very nicely, and he sits at the table, and he opens up his bag of M&Ms. But the second I hand him just a small portion of that sugar stash, something transforms inside of him, and he becomes unbelievably territorial. To the point where, after I slide it over to him, if I lean over to him and I say, hey, can, uh, can Dad have a little bit of that? you would think I'm asking him to saw off his right arm and mail it to his grandparents in Michigan. He is unbelievably put out. He has no idea that I have this storehouse full of sugar, that I am the gatekeeper of all the good Reese's and M&M's, and that if he should run out and being generous to me, I could make it rain milk chocolate in his little life. He has no idea. He is purely in the consumer stage. Once it's in my hand, it's mine, and it's for me. And here's the thing I know about myself and about you. Most people don't ever grow out of that stage. It goes from being Halloween candy to money. 
And we say, if it's, if it's in my hand, it's mine. I'm not mindful of who gave it to me or how it got to me, but if it's in my hand, it's mine. And it exists for my blessing and for my benefit. And if anybody asks me or urges me to be generous, I'm going to be put out. Oh, I had to show up on the Sunday where they're going to talk about money. Ugh! No different than my four-year-old, right? It's as if we're asking you to cut off your arm and mail it to grandma. That, that's the consumer stage. But God's desire is to grow us out of that. And the next stage is the stewardship stage. And, and very often, if you, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you start to mature in your faith in Jesus Christ, you are quite quickly encouraged into this stage where God matures you into a steward. And the other word for steward is simply manager. Like you come to understand, oh, there's a God above me who loves me, and he's given everything to me, and then a light bulb goes on and you say, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should manage this according to his will. Or I should ask him what he wants me to do with it. Like, I'm going to get to enjoy most of it, but maybe I should consider what his will might be with it. That's like basic Christian discipleship management. That's, that's stewardship. People who have matured or are maturing into the steward stage of their generosity, they have taken to heart, whether they know it or not, the warning of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this. This is Moses speaking. He says to God's people, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. Here's the key. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You know that it comes from him, and the light bulb goes on, and you realize, I, I, must, I must have some kind of responsibility towards him in this. And then when you start to wrestle with what might my responsibility towards God be with the stuff that he's put in my hand, you start to realize your cup overflows, and he's calling you to point it in directions that often point away from yourself. And so, like, when you wrestle with this, this is, this is where basic Christian stewardship and tithing comes in. You start to set aside a portion of your income to give back to the work that God is doing in your community, at your church, where he gives you his gifts. This is where you start to budget a little bit and you try to make a little bit of margin in your budget, no matter the size of your budget, so that you can be reactively generous to other people. Like, you should have $20 a week, $20 a month even, even if it's just that, where you can say, I've got money set aside where I can just react to the needs of somebody else around me. It's the stage where you start to save a little bit, and it might not be a lot, but you start to save a little because you say, man, I really want to leave something behind for somebody else so that when they put me in the ground, they can at least slide five bucks over to my grandkids. You start to think about somebody other than yourself. That's the stewardship stage. And for many of us, that's, that's the stage that God is calling us into, out of the consumer and into the life of a steward. But I want to I paint a picture of something beyond even that for you, which is what Paul is talking about here in these, wor in, in these words from 1 Timothy. It's the third stage. It's the philanthropic stage. To go from a consumer to a steward to a philanthropist. Now, when I say that $10 word to you, you immediately think of millionaires who give their money to different charitable causes around the world and they get lots of acclaim for it. But, but don't go there. Don't think that. To be a philanthropist, to have a philanthropic heart, is to be someone who, regardless of your wealth or your income, has a certain posture of heart. It is a person who says, regardless of what I have, I'm going to use whatever I have to 
to expand the well-being of somebody other than myself. A, a philanthropic person is someone whose life is lived for the well-being of others, and they leverage whatever they have in their hand, whether it's five cents or five million dollars, they leverage it for the benefit of others. The consumer is all about me. The steward is aware of God. But the ph philanthropist has become all about you. And you, and you, and you, and others. Have you been on the receiving end of someone else's philanthropic life? They didn't have to be a wealthy person. They were just a person who, who whether they had M&Ms in their hand or dollar bills in their hand, or they were the one holding the ice cream scooper at the family party, they were the person who, if you got in front of them, they were going to take whatever was in their hand and they were going to lean into you and say, I'm going to give you as much as I can. And chances are you've encountered someone in your life. My family's been blessed to, to know so many people who have lived with philanthropic, generous attitudes who have just taken whatever they have and decided to bless us with it. And when you encounter that, it is this, this mind-blowing, joyful experience. Who's done this for you? Maybe you didn't know this, but, but it was people like this who grew the early church. Not just by funding it, but but by being so radically generous despite the high cost of joining the church that the rest of the world took notice. In the earliest days of the Christian church, Christians were being persecuted and killed, in particular by the Romans, for a long season. But then also there was a, there was a big social stigma and a high social cost with joining the Christian movement. It might mean the loss of your job or being alienated from your family. And yet despite the risk and the cost, people were joining the Christian movement in droves. Number one, because of this, this mind-blowing message of God's unending mercy through Jesus Christ that crossed political, racial, and economic lines, but also because they saw this radical, jaw-dropping generosity from people. So Tertullian was this church leader in the third century, and he writes that, that pagans used their offerings in their temples to pay for drunken parties, but the Christians had gained a reputation for taking their own personal wealth, whether it was a lot or a little, and the offerings from the temple, and, and feeding the poor, and clothing the needy, and feeding the hungry, and, and caring for others. And so much so that pagans took note of this. The pagan emperor Julius once publicly bemoaned, and this was written down, he publicly bemoaned that, quote, the pious Christians care not only for their own, but they care for everyone else's poor and weak and needy. In other words, the Christians are so generous, it's making us look bad, and that's why the world took notice. What if that were said of you? What if that were said of us? That your life was themed with generosity, that whatever you had in your hands, somebody else was going to get some of it too. I, I would put before you that that is, that is a vision for life that is worth pursuing. And that if you give your life away, you will find what life truly, truly is. And you might be wondering, well, how do I get there? How do I get to a place where I actually want to pursue this? I want my whole life to be marked and themed with generosity. You just got to start. 
I said this last week. I said this last Wednesday. Here's how human beings are shaped and formed in virtue. Our hearts are changed by our habits. If you wait for your heart to be overflowing in generosity before you are living this generous life to other people where you're scooping extra ice cream, giving extra cash, whatever cash you've got, and where you're sharing your M&Ms without people having to remove your arm, whatever it is, you start doing what generous people do and trust that your heart will follow. Your heart will follow. And so let, let me speak plainly to those who call St. Mark their home. If you're here as a baptized follower of Jesus Christ and this is your church home, yet you are not yet tithing in any capacity, there's no strategic proportional amount of your income that you give back to God through the work of this church, you, you really need to start there. Later today, when you walk out of this service and you see the giving tree, you should not just grab one tag, you should grab three. I challenge you to grab four. That might mean that there's three less presents underneath your tree. You'll be fine. It may mean that you have to have a tough conversation in your house about what some of your priorities are and what some of your expenditures are so that you've got a little bit of wiggle room and margin in whatever amount of money that you have so that you can be reactively generous to people around you. If you are one of our school families and you are, you are blessed to be able to pay the tuition that allows your son or your daughter to come to this school, I would encourage you and challenge you to live your life of generosity towards our annual fund, which supports a scholarship fund that allows families that are less blessed than yours to send their children here at a reduced cost so that they can get a great education and they can hear about Jesus and they can have the same experience that your children or your grandchildren did. Take those things and start doing them and see if your heart doesn't follow after. I, I, I like dare you to do it. I dare you to do it and see what happens. But this is how we're wired to work. Like you might not be a person who's obsessed with Apple products like I am. You probably didn't stand in a Black Friday line, not that I did. You probably didn't stand in a Black Friday line for the new iPad Pro. You may never own an Apple Watch because you don't desire such things. But here's what I know. That if I were to come up to you and say, hey, uh, just a heads up, uh, I cleared out your checking account and your savings account, and I talked to your investment guy, and I put all of it in Apple stock, something would happen. Number one, you would hit me. But number two, instantly a change would take place in your heart. You may not be happy about it, but all of a sudden, after you started icing down your hand from hitting me, you would turn on CNBC and you'd be looking for the Apple symbol on the stock ticker that's going at the bottom of the screen. And all of a sudden, you would have this vested internal interest in how that thing is doing. You would take notice. All of a sudden, you would notice people who have Galaxy smartphones and people who are repping the iPhone 10. And all of a sudden, you would care about these things. Why? Because you have invested in these things. That's just how human beings work. You put your treasure someplace, and your heart will follow. I think, I think somebody really important once said that. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. If you want your heart to change, start investing in the change, and your heart will follow. There's only one way to find out. I want you to take a journey from being a consumer to being a steward. And I want you to have a picture of your life that is beyond stewardship to a life of philanthropic generosity where with whatever you have, you are blessing somebody else and that other people can't wait to get in front of you whether you're holding M&M's, dollar bills, or an ice cream scooper in your hand. 
and trust that that is a better way to live and that when you embrace generosity in that, in that form to that degree that it will add incredible gratitude to your life. I'll close with this story. The story has been told throughout generations of a small Native American tribe in what we now call Mississippi. This small tribe got into a feud with a larger Native American tribe. The small tribe had an encampment on the side of a, of a raging, strong river. As they were fighting this larger tribe, it became clear that unless they fled from their camp, they were going to lose. But the only route of escape would be to pass through the river. And it was so fast and so furious that if they stepped into it, not only would those who were weaker or smaller certainly die, but even the strong ones would likely get swept away. And so they were left with this, this challenge. How do we escape if crossing through the river means death probably for everyone. We need the tribe and our legacy and our heritage and our lineage to live on, so what do we do? They considered a lot of things. Some of them weren't nice. They considered, do they leave the weak ones behind? Do they leave the children and the elderly and those who'd already been injured in battle behind? And you let the, the strong ones try their best to navigate the waters and see if they can get the safety so that the tribe can live on? Or do you just give up and everybody stays in camp and let the let the, let, let, the other, let the other tribe come and destroy you and take you. Finally, they settled on this. The strong in the tribe decided that they would carry the children and the weak ones and the injured on their shoulders. The strong put the weak on their shoulders and they waded in to the strong and powerful river. And as they waded into the river, they discovered something Beautiful that the weight of the weak on their shoulders actually placed their feet more firmly on the bed of the river. And that they were able to, to find more stable footing because they were carrying the weight of the weak ones on their shoulder. And their willingness to carry others on their shoulder actually made it possible for both of them, more possible for both of them to cross the dangerous river and succeed and live and survive. And so they did. And for me, that is a picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about generosity. What we're talking about is those who are blessed and you are blessed. In generosity, what you're choosing to do is to put other people on your shoulder. And it is a risk to you. It feels scary to you. But other people need you in order to experience the life that God wants them to experience, be it through this church or through the community or through some charity. They need you. They, they need you to put them on your shoulders. And what you discover when you do that is though it's scary, though it's a weight, though it's a burden, what you discover is that your feet are more deeply grounded in the things that actually give you life. Your feet become more deeply grounded in generosity, in love, and in joy, and in gratitude. And what you discover is that by taking on the burden of putting somebody else on your shoulders, both of you live. You walk into the life that God has designed you to live, which is the life of giving it all away. May it be said of you that you count your blessings. You know how big your cup is and how full it is. May it be said of you that you are quick to give him credit. And may it be said of you, may it be said of us, that we are shockingly satisfied with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We must be. Because we give all else to others. Let's pray.